All right, guys, look, we know what this is. It's my pre-show pitch to try to convert more free first-hour listeners to full two-hour plus show subscribers. And this is a format I've been using for 10 years now, so I realize that most people who see the value have already pulled the trigger on it, but now I'm trying to get deep down into those hard-to-reach places, and I guess that's you. Now, what can I say that hasn't been said? There's only a few ways a podcast works. The big one is ads. They suck. They ruin the flow of the show. And in a lot of cases, they erode the trust and respect I have for hosts that go this route. They shouldn't be promoting boner pills and hair pills or encouraging a fast track through the therapy pipeline just because they're getting paid. I've seen nutritionalists break down some of these ingredients in the athletic health powders and drinks and surprise, they're not as good as they claim to be. I bought a razor my favorite podcaster said would be Nick Proof, nicked myself the first day. I got sucked into a foam mattress from a guy who said he's never slept better and I haven't slept good since. And that Irish titles thing everyone was selling turned out to be a complete scam too. But enough about how my colleagues' mouths are for sale to whoever asks, I'm here to put you in this Plus membership today. Five shows a month for eight bucks with a decade-long archive. And yes, the first hour is important. It's there to present our guests to the wide counterculture, open-minded audience we've cultivated, and it gives people a feel for if they like what THC is, as well as being the proof of concept that I can do a lot more with the added time. The second hour is so I can make a living, and it's also an opportunity to get into the stuff your standard one-hour shows can't, asking guests about that obscure, provocative quote from their book that I actually read, talking about previous work they might have done, getting their thoughts on some odd subject outside of their latest material, or maybe even talking about something too spicy to be out there in the open. And that should appeal to anyone who enjoys the first hour. And when you become a Plus member, these full episodes are all there in a single two-hour file, no switching back and forth or downloading two separate halves of the same interview. It's very nice to have it that way going forward, and if you want to go back, unlike most podcast archives that are just a big chronological list, the HiresideChats.com has categories and scrolling displays much like the big streaming services, and it's all optimized for mobile, and you can even download the files for offline listening. Find some old ones you liked and refresh your memory by starting at the beginning or jump in about 50 minutes to hear everything that would be new to you. I'm even going to be pulling one free plus show a month out of the archive and into the free feed to give you an even better sense of what you miss. The on-site comment section is pretty lively and the rating system is there to let me know the shows plus people like best. You also get lifetime access to the forum and access to a bonus page of exclusive interviews I've done here and there, bonus content from other shows that I was on, videos from the few live podcasts I've done, and the mp3s of all the THC closing cover songs I've had made. But that's not all, folks. Plus members also get a discount code for THC merch. A lot of great artwork of aliens, summoning rituals, hollow earth maps, and a wide range of wild stuff put on shirts, coffee mugs, pillows, yada, yada, yada. But it's the ongoing full interviews people want and it's convenience that they need. Well, I know 90% of listeners are in a podcasting app right now. So at the top of the show notes, there are the signup links. The form is quick and easy, and THC Plus has an RSS feed like any other show, and it can be used with all the big podcasting apps, too. I've got support documents and real, non-bot people to help you if you need it. But it's been made as easy as it can be, and you get a seven-day free trial to make sure I'm right. At least meet me there. I also have a Patreon link at the top of the show notes, which I don't love. I'd rather not have a middleman between us when we could be dancing cheek to cheek, but they are a Spotify partner, and a lot of people choose Spotify to listen to THC. So I wanted to make sure they could use it for Plus also, while they let us. 
The show notes also give you my P.O. box for cash, checks, or business-to-business bartering, as well as all the crypto addresses, because anything is better than nothing. And I want the Plus shows to be heard any way they can be. Just offer me some kind of exchange, you know? This is the job I work at. And I use this example a lot, but a waiter gets an $8 tip for walking the most forgettable meal of your life from the kitchen to the table, and you don't get anything extra for your $8 either. If what I do here isn't at least worth that, is it even worth your time? Hey, I don't like doing this part of the job, but I owe it to my family now to suck it up and make my case while I can, because who knows how long this can last. I'm not some Hollywood millionaire trying to appear genuine through a focus grouped podcasting venture cycling through all the other celebrities in the agency. I'm just a regular guy who had to make myself valuable when the working world didn't think I had anything to offer. And I hope the first free hour proves that the full experience is worth the price. If we don't like the ad revenue-based world we're living in, then we have to support people who dare to do it a different way, who provide us something interesting, entertaining, and hopefully useful. Outside of that, I just ask that you support the guests who resonate with you, or at least let them know you appreciated what you heard. And that's it. We can get on with the show. And we'll let the rest of the podcasting world pretend there's no better way to do it than disingenuously hyping up any product that cuts them a check while we do our own thing. Meet me on the plus side. The water's fine and enjoy. The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something that be on the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every close-chested view I find the more you think you know the less you really do where would we be without THC cause we know they're lying to us just don't know to what degree where would we be without THC the higher side chat show Greg Carwood and company Oh, oh, it's magic, people. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood. And if you pay attention to highly charged events, wartime propaganda, and the PSYOP stories of the week, initially, you see that coverage is all over the place. Details are reported that don't add up or conflict with each other. Witnesses say there were two shooters when the news says only one. Reporters announce the collapse of buildings that are still standing behind them. Graphic images are seated that seem obviously ridiculous with hindsight. And all this sloppiness shows us that the system and its narrative control is not nearly as absolute as advertised. And in fact, consensus reality is a curation process where the inconvenient information and alternative angles are calmly cut out of the discourse over time. And the story they want to tell you is repeated often enough that everything else is just forgotten. Now imagine a time when the information control apparatus was not nearly as entrenched or sophisticated as it is today, with small local papers being started up by any motivated and interested person with hard copies distributed densely, but not widely. And most of the exciting stuff is only written about once and ends with a collective shoulder shrug and thoughts of, I wonder whatever happened with that. This is life in America in the 1800s when industrial expansion and urban development was stumbling upon all sorts of exciting finds, reporting them, and then the narrative control complex quietly quarantined inconvenient information, compromised the sites, kept evidence from circulating too widely by shipping most of it off to the Smithsonian for analysis, and maybe they even bought the paper. 
Then 200 years later, in the excitement of the digital age, humble historians and public servants digitized any and all of these old, seemingly inconsequential newspapers into searchable archives without even the slightest realization of what could be found with the right search terms and how people like today's returning guest analog would be able to reconstruct a lost world of wonder full of evidence for American mummies, underground temples, buried pyramids, strange beasts, giant skeletons, cave cities, anomalous artifacts, hidden energy, and suppressed science. Well, the truth can be delayed, but it cannot be stopped. Here to bring us the latest and greatest, the archive comer, reality reconstructor, and wonder restorer, Analog, my man, welcome back. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, I'm psyched for this. I very much look forward to our every six months or so opportunity to reconnect and go over the cliff notes from your ongoing work. Your YouTube channel is one of the best. And I think a lot of people might be surprised that you're still finding so much. These aren't a few isolated incidents. And through this Anomalous America series, you're going state by state and showing these remnants of the old world were everywhere. And pretty much every state has official reports of giant bones, artifacts that shouldn't be there, temples and underground complexes of polished stone and well-engineered arches and domed ceilings. So much exciting stuff, it's hard to believe. But how have the last six months of research gone for you if you had to catch us up on things and how the work is progressing? Oh, it's been fantastic. And I was kind of inspired by our first talk to get a platform up that would better represent the things that I've found. And I found the video and kind of live filming video, reading the articles has been working out really good. And as far as like research goes, a huge majority of the work has just been reorganizing what I had saved over the last almost 10 years, eight years into some kind of theme, so to say. And my Anomalous America show was the best way for me to start doing that. You know, anytime a thought would come into my head, like sometimes I'd be listening to you or I'd be reading a book or listening to another podcast, a theme would pop into my head, whether it was buried ruins or ancient mummies or Hebraic inscriptions on stone or whatever it was, right? And that would lead me to, I'm going to go see what was being said about this in X date. And then I would just save it. There was never any purposeful organization to it. And I never really looked into putting it out into the public. So the last six months, there has been quite a bit of new material, but the majority of it has just been rereading stuff that I had clipped over the last almost decade. And it's been fantastic. You know, when you have so much material, and I'm sure you can relate to this too with how many shows you've done now. You can listen back to one and you don't even remember the state of mind you were in or the things you said. And uh, you don't have to go far back to realize that. And reading some of these articles, you don't even remember reading them the first time and it's like brand new. So that's been the majority of it is just as I put these things into video format, finding old material that I had at one time read but completely forgot about has been fantastic. And you've seen a lot of my YouTube videos. I have the longer format Anomalous America, but I also put up quite a few shorter, you know, under 45 minute videos. Those alone speak for themselves, let alone the longer format Anomalous America episodes down. You know, I had a lot of people, you know, we've talked about this too, mention, you know, journalism, you can't trust it. It doesn't matter what the date is and so on and so forth. And I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything, but I think the material speaks for itself now. 
just from what I presented, let alone the hundreds and hundreds of other articles that are yet to come as I have time to develop a picture of a completely different world than we've been led to believe. Yes. And that's what I tried to express in the intro is that today we have like six companies and even they have interlocking overlapping boards, but you know, six companies control all the media. And back then there were all these different little papers. And so some guy just down the street, he starts digging and he finds something crazy. They write about it in the paper. The Smithsonian finds out about it. They often say in the article that they shipped it off there and then it just goes away. So the control of this stuff wasn't necessarily as ironclad. And then the newspapers, they just drift out of memory and physically disappear. And then it's all thanks to this archiving that we're able to go back. And they have a lot of narrative control, but here's all these cracks in the story. And it's a beautiful thing. Before we get too deep into the material itself, I wanted to bring this up. So the first time we talked, you mentioned how you got into this. One part of the story was that you were trying to locate an article about a bomb you had found near your middle school when you were a kid. And so you went into these newspaper archives to find it. And that got you in the game, so to speak. Then in 2007, you had a bad motorcycle accident that could be considered a near-death experience and or an out-of-body experience. And you became a bit obsessed with trying to figure out what happened to you. Can we hear a little more about that? I'm seeing this work you do, and it seems almost faded now. What was this out-of-body experience like? Because it seems like it changed you quite a bit. And there is this archetypal experience people have where they are touched by the anomalous or whatever, and they might have a download experience. And then they're just forever changed. They look at the world with new eyes and it just seems like I'm kind of seeing the shape of that with your story. Yeah. So in 2007, I had a motorcycle accident an October morning, cold October morning, not an ideal time to be riding a motorcycle here in Oregon. And I live right on the edge of the city and it's all farmland. So, you know, the best roads to ride. And the area I live in is quite hilly, so it's mountainous, curvy, fun, amazing winding roads. And there was a little bit of dew, October morning dew on the ground. And I lost control of the bike. And I did what's called a high side. I lost the rear end, and then it shot me straight up in the air. And as that whole process happened, I left my body and watched the accident unfold. And during that tiny fraction of time, I had this feeling of complete disconnection from physical reality, so to say. There wasn't like that, it's hard to have peace of mind, so to say, that you always have thoughts going, you know, quieting the mind. It was just totally silent. And I didn't even have the ability to think like, what am I witnessing here? Everything was in slow motion. And all I remember is waking up to the sound of an ambulance coming and a gentleman holding my hand that was on the road who saw the accident. I was laying in the middle of the street. So he had parked his car. So the cars had stopped. So traffic was just a mess. And the ambulance, I could hear the siren coming from super far away. 
I got pulled into my body and I tried to put my elbows down and sit up, but I had broken my back and I had broken my shoulder and I had broken quite a few bones. And as I did that, I was like, kind of that like waking up from a dream feeling where you're kind of out of it. And then all the pain started and I like immediately was pulled back into that human physical sensation. And fast forward, as time went on and I was in the hospital, I had more and more, I guess, memory of that experience. It took several months to have the full uh, memory of what happened and how I witnessed everything. That really didn't set in until quite a few months down the road. And I couldn't walk for several months. I was basically, you know, wheelchair bound for almost seven months. And during that time, I couldn't do anything but sit up. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. So it was just purely mental. And I broke the accident down a million times. And with that came, what could this experience have been? How did this happen? And I think I had mentioned to you before, I came across an author. I don't even think Google was a thing then. Maybe it was, but internet search. And I came across a book called The Proof of Heaven. And I'm going to space the author's name. I should know it. But basically, this surgeon, he was doing volunteer work in Africa. He got an infection in his brainstem and he died like seven times or something. And he had a bunch of these out of body experiences and he could recollect them all. He was, he could hear people talking. He could tell the people, I remember you having the story, even though he was in a induced coma. All his colleagues said that, look, this is what happens. You hallucinate, right? Because that's what my mother said. My mother works in the medical field. She's like, people that are in these accidents and high stress situations, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing, they hallucinate. That's just part of, you know, the human reaction to these situations. Nothing about it was a hallucination to me. It was like the exact opposite. I was seeing things for what they really were. So anyways, I found this book and he basically dedicated his life to proving his colleagues wrong and that everything he experienced was real. In fact, more real than what we would call waking consciousness that we experience regularly. And with that was like, okay, I had to work really hard to find this little bit of information. And I know you've had guests on who have talked about the similarities that exist between people and these experiences, especially people that get old. Both my grandmothers are alive and they're both approaching 100. They regularly have very interesting, I wouldn't say out of body experiences, but they have like waking dreams, so to say. And I can't remember which guest it was, but a guest of yours had talked about that you are in this childlike state and through life you grow and hit this kind of apex and then you kind of start to slowly return to the child state. And, you know, whatever that means and having little kids how they interpret their dreams and how they look at life are so very similar. There's not this big disconnect that we have as we get into more of adult age. And you return to that same kind of blending where the worlds blend again, and they're not so distinctly separate. So yeah, that whole experience led me to peace with death. Because at that age, you know, I was young and I was riding a street bike, which is quite stupid. Not something I would necessarily do now with kids. But that's that age, right? You're kind of just willy-nilly. Not everyone's like that. But anyways. <laughs> I was. I was for sure. Yeah. So, you know, you have different perspective and looking at life cyclically and, you know, where I am now and having these grandmothers that have 
seen almost a hundred years and looking at how they talk and act now. And, but yeah, the kind of bridging of consciousness and what that means and what is waking consciousness, what is dream state. And the more time I spent looking into that, the more the worlds kind of blended together. And with all of that research came, as you're aware, with anything, as you educate yourself on any subject, you find, okay, wow, whatever I, you know, knock and seek in you shall find, you know, the kind of metaphors all over the Bible about truth, whatever it may be, you have to get out and go and look for it. It's not going to find you. You may have an accident and have that kind of blanket awakening, so to say, and catalyst, but you still have to put in the work. So that just spiraled into everything, finance, government, spirituality, death, whatever. And eventually, like you mentioned, previous to that accident, I had been looking and the archives weren't quite digitized yet. They were very archaic. You had to go to the library and then they had these big rolls so you could narrow down dates. They were on a, I don't even know how to describe it, you know, a light projector screen. I don't even know. It wasn't a computer screen. Yeah, almost like the glass of a copier without the lid on it. I've seen that stuff. So you gave them a time frame and they brought you like, I can't remember if they were photocopies. They weren't the originals, but something along those lines. And through a bunch of work, I was able to find the little clipping about me finding the pipe bomb. And as I had mentioned to you before, you know, the bomb squad came and the whole neighborhood was gathered around. Like, why is the bomb squad here? It was this big thing. And then my research into, okay, well, that was quite tedious. Fast forward, you know, 10 years or so. And I was doing a radio show with a friend of mine from Denmark. And we were talking about how the digitization of things, pictures, that all of that archives of the world are now at your fingertips and how incredible this is. And there must be some kind of, you know, I always look at these types of events as macro microcosmic not just you know why would they do this why are they giving us this information i feel like there's more of a kind of spiritual explanation for these types of things and we were talking about an article from hawaii and from that moment on i was obsessed and 90% of all of my research went from physical library books where i would find a subject get the book and read the book to digital and since then, it's been the same thing, about 90% digital. I mean, and having children, as you know, time is everything. I don't have time to read a whole book. Analog, you know, that's kind of why the name stuck was that I was bringing a kind of analog research presence into this digital space to maximize the little bit of time that I had. And yeah, that's led us to where we are today. And there's no end to the amount of things you can find in newspapers and whatever your your lens is whatever you want to look for health i have so much stuff on the transition from normal naturopathic health into the allopathic realm with the rockefellers and that transition in the early 1900s it's incredibly interesting so yeah whatever your lens is you can jump into an archive and you'd be quite amazed what people were talking about in the 1800s how much it's changed to today yeah Man, well, I do appreciate you sharing that. It's not like the Greys gave you a new purpose on the astral plane, but an out-of-body experience, I mean, it does get the wheels turning into what is life even. And uh, I find that whether it's someone who 
experiences an abduction or even sees a UFO or has an out-of-body experience, it seems like these are all mechanisms that make you more connected to source, the universe itself, whatever it is. There's like a tether and like there's a little more energy coming through there now. And it just is interesting that I find so many people with those kind of experiences, even though they seem totally separate, they all kind of end up, not all, but there's an archetype of a lot of people who end up doing similar things in this sort of work. And I'm sure going through an accident like you had teaches you a lot firsthand about modern medicine and allopathic medicine and natural medicine and true healing and all these sorts of things. But to jump into the meat of what it is we get into here, I wanted to ask you about kind of a bird's eye view of a lot of this stuff, because we are going to talk about some articles and some little threads that are super interesting. But when you try to pull it all together, I want to know what your latest understanding is, because we have some researchers who will drill down on the idea of a Moorish America because they see Moorish architecture and even Native American tribes who use the star and crescent symbol. Like, what? What's that about? Well, we know there are also a lot of artifacts from other cultures dug up in early America with carved letters from cultures on the other side of the world that shouldn't be there. And some people just started using the word Tartaria, but you were telling me Tartarian really kind of means Chinese. Help us find the thread in all this strangeness when it comes to who was where, when, because I, I don't like that so many people have grouped Tartarian research into this thing that they just feel like they can ignore. It's like the flat earth. We don't need to know about that. You sent me an article where Tartarian was clearly mentioned in it as a language, along with all the other ones we would know. But I guess just to make it a question, how do we square all these circles with Moorish architecture and Chinese artifacts and all these things? Yeah, so you've heard me mention, I think, the vapor canopy. And in the 1800s, it was pretty universal that the world was enveloped in some kind of vaporous canopy. And this contributed to the proof, because it's worldwide, that the realm was one specific type of climate. And, you know, I started Anomalous America in Alaska and showed quite clearly that very recently from a geological record that Alaska was tropical. The shores are covered in coral, tropical coral. Obviously, it's dead now. But coral, you know, like a bone leaves behind its existence. And bringing that to today, the Tartaria definition, you know, in the 1800s, 1700s, was given to it by Rome, or I wouldn't say the Catholic Church. They definitely didn't go by that exact representation in the time period. But I think, again, we were dealing with another, I don't want to say reset, but some kind of a separation because you had this quote global superpower which was rome that had its tentacles much like the english did in the 1700s into the early 1800s but rediscovering all of these things right and what was unknown so to say or beyond rome's control was often labeled tartaria it also went by barbaria or barbarian or barbary 
And these were just realms that Rome dealt with that were outside of their dominion and perhaps were so large and so well organized, similar to Rome, that Rome wasn't able to capitalize or to take them over or bring them into their dominion. And you get these weird blips and gaps in history, much like we talk about in America, where Rome has whole parts of the globe that they have no idea what even exists here. And this is kind of the Marco Polo story. You know, I've kind of blown holes in the Marco Polo story, and I've gone as far as to elude, I'm careful to say for sure, that Marco Polo actually came to America. And the explanations that he gives in his stories of Cathay and Kublai Khan and all of these things he experienced here were actually America. And when you say that Tartaria was Chinese, well, what was Chinese? Because some of the earliest leaders of the Chinese have direct correlation with the Olmec of South America, Mexico, and that the Olmec was a name given to them, and that they actually were called the people of Z or the Z people XI, and that the early dynasties of China were also the Z people. And that when you look through some of the oldest Chinese art, they have very dark skin. And you find that oddities pop up between language, race. Again, these things of race and language, they didn't have the connotations they do today. Again, why I brought up the vapor canopy was that it was widely known in, across many different religious groups that we all came from one particular climate and that the whole world pre-Babel had one language. You've heard all this. One language, one race. We are all dark skin. And then there was some tragedy some cataclysm. Perhaps it was the falling of the vapor canopy that leads to these stories of the deluge, which I've done quite a few videos on. And people, again, in that sweet spot, 1800s, had quite different opinions about what these Bible stories were. And then we go into the artifacts that they're finding here in America that make, you know, even the most learned geologists go, well, I'm finding all these proofs of the Bible stories here in America. How is that possible? And then the language thing, they're finding ancient Hebrew tablets of Moses, not only in along the Mississippi Valley, but in California. So again, taking a step back and looking at all of my work and again, trying not to give you super long-winded answers, narrowing it down to a specific thing. The Babel story exists most anciently here in the Americas, and they describe events, not just one, several, four specifically, where the earth has been reset and then repopulated. And then another cataclysm comes. And through these transitions, stories become more vague. Languages get more mixed up. And so you brought up the Chinese Tartaria thing. In that late 1700s, even in some of the 1600s, but again, the literature is just coming from very one source, European, English, Roman. So you have to really be careful. That's why I love the discovery stuff, because you're dealing with small niches of people where the control apparatus is so widely spread and thin that these things are able to pop through this thin membrane, whereas technology is so easy to control and manipulate things now. Even when these things are discovered, as you've had guests on the mention many times, there's so much bureaucracy involved that the odds of these things making it to the public are slim to none. But yeah, so Tartaria, the Tartarians, you could describe them as remnants of a previous civilization. That this huge conglomerate that we call Rome, that we probably in many ways still live under today, 
was slowly repopulating and grabbing a realm that had been, I think, affected by some giant cataclysm. And yeah, I just did a video quite recently reading an article about Mexico. And since you mentioned Chinese, the caption is ancient buried races of the Americas, cataclysmic cycles, mud floods, and more. And this author who's exploring a Mayan ruin is digging a well for the workmen that are involved in excavating. Because, you know, they're bringing in all these people from the towns. Anybody that needs work that'll take a few bit of dollars. And they dig a well and they go down and they keep finding new city after new city after new city. Whoa. And in this guy's explanation, he says, yeah, we're looking at these ruins, these Mayan ruins, which people hop on planes and fly to Mexico and take tours of these amazing pyramids. He says, well, there's at least four levels, four different cities underneath this one. So his whole perspective shifts and he's like, okay, well, obviously what's up here is beautiful and amazing. And what happened to these people? But then he goes down and he shows that there are four cities in total, three buried beneath all of these pyramids in the Yucatan that are hidden in the jungle, right? Which we still hear people talk about today. They're like, oh my gosh, imagine when we clear out all these jungles, because you know they're doing all this burning for cattle lands and all these different soybean farms, and they keep just burning and finding these ruins all over the Amazon, Central America, Guatemala. And he's like, well, but what about all this? And he's finding between 10 to 20 feet of earth on top of these buried cities. So these resets, again, you know, using that term lightly, who knows exactly what's happening. There's at least four of them. And I have articles that support this, not just in Central America, but in the Americas. And I've covered them in my Anomalous America series. And I have some in Italy, some in Turkey, Constantinople. They were having water issues. And so they were clearing out the catacombs, the cisterns. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the cisterns there. It's like, well, this alone makes you question what happened? Who built this? Because they're insane. The cisterns of Constantinople are monstrous. And then they find Constantinople's built on top of an ancient city. And then they find another. So there's at least two layers of civilization under Constantinople alone. And they find these all over Italy where they're like, okay, we're clearing out a well. There was a flood and we find a whole buried city. And this is all across America and I think all across the realm. So again, going back to this 1800 date where things just seem to kind of kick off and we're constantly, we're just traveling all over looking for what happened or finding remnants of this previous race. But then when you dig deep enough, you go, okay, this has happened several times. So that's kind of where my focus has been. Like, yeah, of course there are ruins everywhere, but here's the kicker. <laughs> it's cities built on cities on cities. And, you know, even the Aztecs said that we're cleared, God comes in and wipes the slate, and then we rebuild. And that all major cities, and I cover this a lot in Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado, Arizona especially, most of the large cities in Arizona are built on top of another city where they have no explanation. Yeah, this is something I've definitely picked up from your work is it happens time and time again. It's like this realm is a big Etch-A-Sketch and every once in a while, God shakes it loose or a big ant farm. I've never heard that. I like that description. It's perfect. Yes. <laughs> we kind of climb out of the rubble and look around and we're like, well, that might be a good place to build because there's at least some kind of structure over there and we just build on top of it. Maybe it's subconscious. Maybe it's out of practicality or maybe the elite or like the best way to bury something is to absolutely dominate it and 
cement it over and put skyscrapers there and all that stuff. Wipe it clean, yeah. Yes. And since the last time we spoke, you've put out episodes on several states in the Anomalous America series. And one of those is Missouri, my old stomping grounds. Another one is Ohio. I've heard you say that these are two of the episodes that contain some of the most radical stuff. And last time it was mainly a focus on the Southwest. Let's take it over to the Midwest. These episodes, they're all two hours long, so there's no shortage of things to talk about. But what are some of the big things in particular in Missouri that you found that were really interesting? Yeah, so I think that was honestly some of the first material that brought me and you together. Listening to your show and always hearing that you were from Missouri and you moved to San Diego, I think I sent you stuff I found in Missouri and the stuff I found in San Diego. I mean, they found Egyptian ruins, cities full of pyramids outside of San Diego, and similar finds have been found in Missouri. In fact, you know, St. Louis was really called Mound City. And from Mound City or St. Louis all the way across the river into Illinois and Cahokia, right? They found that, okay, so these burial mounds that we keep calling burial mounds, some are burial mounds, some are tombs, right? And then they find these large ones. And again, St. Louis and across the river, across the Mississippi into Cahokia is an incredible area because, and you had read this on, I think our first show, but they're building that beautiful bridge there in St. Louis that crosses the Mississippi. And when they were running the pylons, right, they were making these dry areas where they build these insulated areas where the workmen can go all the way down to the bottom of the river, right? So they build these little blockades to block the river water. The workmen can go down and they drill these big boreholes so they can lay cement for the foundation for the footings for the bridge. Well, as they're blowing the rock, remember they're at the bottom of the river protected by these walls that they built, they're blowing the rock the bedrock, and they blast their way into a tunnel. I think this is the one that you had read on the show. I can't remember exactly. They blast their way into a tunnel, and they find this tunnel extends all the way across the Mississippi into Illinois, and then all the way into St. Louis. In the tunnel, they find heads that hold torches and what look like wagon wheel carts, like tracks. This is all perfectly carved, ornate stone with inscriptions on all the stone. And it goes under the Mississippi and it connects St. Louis with Cahokia. Well, they follow this tunnel and they find all of these chambers with beautiful murals painted on the walls. And they realize that all of the mounds in this region, they go underground, they're buildings. So the deeper they go, they find, oh, this is well-executed cut stone. And there are tunnels connecting all of them. The article doesn't go into any further description beyond that the tunnels, they say the mounds are connected by subterranean tunnels and that the tunnels extend into the mountains. And I've said in previous episodes, I think, again, we've talked about this in my Nevada episode, that deep underground military bases are based on previous civilizations that had made habitation underground. And that these mounds, which are also built to represent the stars, much like Giza, which maybe this will lead into some material we'll discuss further that they connect their vaults, that they call them doorways, and that these giant devices, even the Native Americans or Aborigines, whatever you want to call them, up until the 1900s, said that the pyramids were built by an advanced race 
to survive not only floods of the Mississippi, but great deluges, and that they were doorways into the underground. And that's exactly what they find. They find that all of these large mound complexes, they're not just burial mounds like we're being led to believe, like that blanket statement that they're all one thing. They're certainly not. They're actually very, very large buildings or vaults into this subterranean network system. And, you know, the Ozarks and the Appalachian Mountains, hundreds of miles of tunnels with tombs and living spaces have been explored. Many of these articles I've covered before. I don't want to get too long winded, but yes, Missouri and this whole area of the Mississippi in general, people ask why I haven't covered more states in the West. My goal was to start in Alaska and make my way to Mississippi as quickly as I could because that's the majority of my material. Just because I was so fascinated with that area, my family grew up in the South in Georgia. My grandfather and grandmother told me all kinds of crazy stories, you know, and they have 250 years of family lineage in the South all the way up to Massachusetts. But yeah, the things they find in Missouri are crazy. That's just one of them. They're blasting a coal shaft. They're down 300 feet because how they measure where they're going to invest their money is they want to find the deepest coal beds they can. They don't want a coal bed that's only four feet deep and bring in all this machinery and men and they exhaust the coal. So they dig these big shafts. Well, in Missouri, they dug a shaft 300 feet and they found a whole city with paved streets, carved stone, ornate fountains, completely buried with a roof over its head. That seems absolutely absurd. But again, I've found so many of these now that that to me is far from absurd and that in almost all states, just like I had mentioned about Mexico and how we keep finding these buried civilizations, that you find with mining especially or well digging that they run into buried cities. And this is all over. I mean, farmers are digging a well, they hit a city. Like, how do you explain that? They found a shaft in Kentucky. It went down 1,200 feet. At the bottom of this shaft, they found a frozen world. Huge cavern, frozen in ice, with a whole subterranean ocean. This is below Kentucky, 1,200 feet below Kentucky. A whole ocean that they couldn't even explore. It was so large, filled with blind sharks and whales. Ooh. This is everywhere. This is the whole realm. And the deeper you go, the crazier the things they find. Yeah, man, that is a great summary of the stuff you're finding. One of my favorite videos, if we're going to get into a specific article, is one that is pretty recent called America, the Promised Land, question mark, ancient tombs of giant Israelites found in Ohio and Missouri, 1880. And you talk about two articles that sort of go together. But the first one is about what we could call Mr. Walden's Temple. And it's pretty wild. A lot of interesting details. If you have it handy, can you read that one for us? Yeah, absolutely. Let me pull it up. For any of your listeners that may not have heard our two previous episodes, this is one of many. I've found so many subterranean worlds, temples, caves that are absolutely beyond explanation. And this is one of them. This is just a farmer, right? 20 feet up, plowing the fields, and look what lies beneath his farm. Now, this is farmers in the 1800s, and the, you know, it's hard to find good stuff in the late 1700s, but mostly it's 1820 and beyond. And this is all over the realm, Kentucky, you know, Iowa, Missouri, everywhere. Farmers find insane things. A petrified forest on his property where the fruit is still completely whole. It's pretty long. Do you want me just to read the part about the temple in Missouri? 
Yeah, I mean, we can cut to that part. People get the gist that this is a farmer who found something pretty crazy underground, and he took his friend down there, is my understanding of how the article is set up, and his friend is reporting what he saw when he was taken down. Mr. Waldron, the owner of the land, and this account is given of an exploration. Without much difficulty, I found Mr. Waldron, the discoverer of the temple, on whose land it is situated. And by the way, this is from 1880. This is an article found in a Pennsylvania newspaper, but it's describing a temple found in Missouri. On whose land it is situated, he proposed, as it was late, that I should remain with him during the night and walk over and see the temple in the morning. I assented, and after supper, Mr. Waldron brought out some of the articles that he had found in the temple for my inspection. They were a bronze hatchet or hammer, having an eye and a heavy knob on the hammer portion, a rude bronze lance or arrowhead, more than six inches in length, a piece of deer or elk horn, about nine inches in length, from which small branches were given off, and an elliptical piece of bronze, from which was cut in a rude manner an imitation of the sun, and some alphabetical characters closely resembling Phoenician. The next morning with Mr. Waldron and his two sons, I set out to visit the temple. Our way lay through a low bottom covered with a dense growth of timber. We soon found ourselves before the cleft in the rock, and after lighting a torch we entered. The arch is elliptical, and for gracefulness of curve and beauty of finish is not excelled by any of the works of present day. Each stone is of the finest granite, polished and as smooth as glass, and they sent back reflections of our torches like polished steel. The springer rests on an emblature, which is placed on the capital of a beautiful column also hewn from granite. The keystone of the arch projects from the interior stones and seems to have been finished with the view of placing an inscription thereon, but this was never done. Passing under the arch, we found ourselves in a room hewn out of solid limestone, 35 feet wide, 50 feet long, and 30 feet high, and vaulted to the center, the ceiling being 45 feet from the floor to the middle of the room. At intervals of 10 feet are graceful, slender columns of granite with square base fantastically carved in imitation of some unknown plant. The shafts, like the shafts supporting the arch, are supported by a capital. Upon this rests a heavy emblature of magnesium limestone, which is closely fitted under the roof and gives the columns the appearance of supporting the ceiling. The acoustic properties of the temple are remarkable. A whisper can be heard from one end of the room to the other. There are twelve columns in the temple, six on each side. Between the columns on each side of the temple and on each side of the arch or entrance to the temple are set in the wall blocks of polished gray and black granite, but there is no inscription of any on them. No sculpture of any kind except the plants mentioned above has been discovered. At the western portion of the room is a dais or raised platform of polished limestone which supports a huge block of granite 5 feet long and 24 inches thick. On this is laid a slab of polished and beveled granite, smoother than marble. This slab projects over the block beneath it about six inches on all sides and is six feet long and three feet wide. Evidently, this was an altar, for there are ashes scattered around. And feel free to cut me off. Like I said, this is a super long article, but evidently intended for the priest who attended to the duties of the altar. The ravages of time have not in the least impaired it, 
and every portion retains the freshness and glow that it had when it came from the hands of the workmen. It is undoubtedly one of the greatest curiosities of the age and is attracting the attention of archaeologists. An exhaustive report is now being prepared by a committee which is to be presented to the Historical Society of the State of Missouri, that it will and fresh interest to the study of the civilization that preceded the present Indian tribes of this country seems probable. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, there's so many little details there that don't fit with what should be possible at the time. What is this kind of a temple doing under some guy's farmland? It even mentions that they're going to make this presentation to the official historical society. That's just like a Smithsonian. Once you hear that, you never hear anything else. The articles go blank. Exactly. I just find that fascinating because this is not some yarn. This guy's like, no, we're really trying to make an academic report and presentation about this place. This person naively thinks that this is going to go down as one of the greatest finds in history. And then, of course, it disappears. And the thing we can never really do is the dive on the individuals who have this information. How did they die? How did they mysteriously die two years later, perhaps? Oh, yeah. And the amount of money the Smithsonian had in this time frame is beyond understanding. They were writing blank checks. I mean, obviously, that's a pun. But I mentioned an article in Utah where a gentleman found a dragon. And the geologist who came and looked at it, said, this is the only dragon with wings that we have ever found. We found reptiles, but we've never found a creature that seems to be a dragon. And he says that it's the only known full skeleton of a dragon ever found. And this is in a cave. He's kept it hidden from the public. He allows one expert to come look at it. The expert is telling the person who's writing the article. Well, the Smithsonian comes and he says, I've been offered $10,000 for this, and I know to wait because the Smithsonian's coming. And he wanted $50,000, and this article's from the late 1800s. You know, $50,000 in 1880, 1870, I can't remember the exact date, is quite remarkable. And I did a video early on about the Smithsonian was offering bounties, and they were hiring these big game hunters. I mean, this is like movie material. The bounty was for $5 million in 1910 for a dinosaur in the Congo. They called it a dinosaur. It was 30 feet tall, had a long neck. And $5 million in that time frame is pretty insane. And that's what they were doing. If they couldn't scare you, they just bought you out. You know, these farmers making pennies on the dollars. I mean, $50,000, that's a lifetime of earnings. I mean, what would you do? You know, you're digging in the dirt and the soil in the desert <laughs> in Utah, making who knows, you know, maybe $1,000 a year if you're lucky. So. That's the period to so many of these sentences. Uh, we notified the historical society or we notified the Smithsonian. That temple is just so fascinating to me. The mention of pillars holding it up. I mean, that, you can't mistake that. Some people think, oh, well, these are just caves and you're using your imagination to make it seem like something that was artificially built. But we have smooth granite. We have an altar. It's wild. And then in that same piece, you go on to talk about another find in Ohio. That's probably the better one of the two, to be honest. Well, give us some of those details. Okay, I'll just summarize. 
they're on a farmer's land. Again, same story, a farmer's land in Ohio. The ground is conical and shapes downward into this weird kind of depression in his land. And yeah, what they find when they remove the rocks covering the bottom of this depression is a tunnel into a underground tomb. And I've found hundreds of tombs. And since we are kind of in this area and talking about things that I've done videos on since we spoke last, one of the videos I did on Kentucky, they talk about they were mining the caves for saltpeter and all these other things that they needed for the war. And they found 3,000 mummies in one cave in Kentucky. And they just burnt almost all of them. <laughs> They used the mummies to burn because they needed to heat up the rock to collect it, to mine it. So they were just burning these mummies. That's what was happening. They said at least 3,000. And they had high dollar investors who were buying the really special ones, whatever that means, probably the ones that were covered in ornate inscriptions. And so the mummy thing, again, going back through anomalous America, we have mummies in Alaska all the way to Ohio mummies. But yeah, I'm going to summarize this article that you mentioned. The title is Tablets Carving in Mummies in an Ohio Cave. Adams County, Ohio is rich in remains of prehistoric mounds and fortifications and is the mecca of enthusiastic archaeologists. And again, for the listeners out there, this is a summary. 17 miles northeast of Manchester is a prehistoric cavern in which wonderful discoveries have lately been made of great interest to the scientific world. They throw much light on the character and habits of this remarkable people evidences of whose high civilization have been preserved to us. A correspondent from the New York Sun lately visited this cavern and gives this description of recent discoveries. The entrance to the cave is choked up with debris of ages, and traces of a flight of steps are to be seen. The entrance is at the bottom of a sinkhole, which is nearly in the center of a level field. This field is 200 acres in extent and is bounded on all sides by lofty hills. It is about 25 feet from the surface of the ground to the bottom of the cave. So 25 feet staircase down into the bottom of this cave. And again, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. It contains nine chambers or rooms. These apartments are connected by narrow galleries. All but the third one from the entrance are mathematically regular in shape, being each about 30 feet in length, 20 feet in width, and 15 in height. The galleries are the same height as the main rooms, but are only six feet wide. The excavation passes through a solid ledge of free stone, which is bisected about 100 feet from the mouth of a vein of limestone. The chamber where the limestone crops out is irregular in shape. The water has oozed through the limestone rocks for ages and formed thousands of beautiful stalactites and stalagmites. The fourth chamber has a deep well in one corner at the bottom of which is a stream of water. The depth of the well is unknown, but it must be several hundred feet. The bottomless pits in some of these caves is a very common thing. These wells that provide perhaps drinking water, but as this one does, a tunnel to a lower chamber. 45 feet from the top of the well. Okay, so remember they're 25 feet below ground. They find a well in one of these chambers and 45 feet from the top of that well, they found the entrance to a second cavern, which proved to be the family tomb of a race of gigantic men. A narrow gallery which expanded as they left the well behind them opened into a lofty chamber, 225 feet long, 110 feet wide. The walls, floor, and roof of this immense room 
are smoothly finished. In the center of the apartment is a sarcophagus and a mausoleum combined. The mausoleum as at base measures 55 by 35 feet. It is of simple, though beautiful design and carved out of solid rock. Its base is parallel on all sides. These panels containing boss reliefs, which are supposed to illustrate the four seasons in man's life, childhood, youth, manhood, and old age. At the ends of the bas reliefs are tables full of written characters resembling the Hebrew, presumed to be the memories of the person or persons in whose honor the mausoleum is erected. The carvings on the panels is of the most delicate description and fully equal to the Grecian school of sculpture. In the center of the mausoleum rises a couch, two feet, five inches in height, 12 feet in length, and five feet in width. On this couch is extended the figure of a man. It is probably life-size and measures nine feet, four inches in length. The limbs are finely proportioned and dispose in an easy and graceful manner. The arms are folded across the breast and the fingers clasp a bunch of leaves resembling oak, which are reproduced with great fidelity to nature. The figure is partially nude, a mantle or scarf crossing the breast and falling over the loins in graceful fold. The face is one of the great strength and beauty and the outline and contour are decidedly Israelitish. The head is covered with a winged helmet elegantly casped and kept in position by rods of the same metal. At each corner of the mausoleum rises a covered pyramidal column surmounted by caps that are unmistakably dory, which I guess is like a kind of an English or European style. Again, you keep getting the Greek overlays, winged helm, everything about this, and the Hebraic carvings on the inscriptions. Carved out of the solid rock and embellished with boss reliefs, on the front of each is raised a scroll covered with written characters similar to those on the panels of the mausoleum. On the walls of the room opposite to the entrance are painted 25 faces. They are faded and blurred, but still distinct enough to be deciphered. The colors used are red, yellow, black, white, and are mixed with oil. The portraits are exquisite in a superior manner, and the anatomical portions of the features is preserved to an exact degree. The explorers opened one of the small tombs. It contained a splendidly preserved mummy, swathed in cloth, covered with a thick varnish, which emits a pleasant aromic odor, not unlike balsam of fur. The mummies measured nine feet one inch in length, and the cloth with which it is wrapped, although of coarse texture, is skillfully woven. The hair resembled the hair sticking to the cloth of your correspondent has some of it left stuck to the cloth, and while this article is being written, it is black, curly, and of fine texture. Again, I'm fast forwarding, so I apologize. A square package at the head of the tomb wrapped in the varnished cloth, contained a book of 100 leaves of thin copper fastened loosely at the top and crowded with finely engraved characters similar to those already described. And I'll end it there because it just keeps going. But yeah, a tomb full of nine-foot-tall mummies with beauty and elegance and architecture 
that we can't copy and no explanation. Yeah, it's insane. Even a single human statue, if you asked anybody on the street, has that ever been found in America, they'd probably say no. And then here's just one example underground holding these leaves resembling oak. That last part you read about the box that was at his head. Yeah. And then they took this box and they unwrapped the cloth from it. And what was inside? It was a book of leaves, a book of copper pages, thinly pressed copper, a hundred pages with written characters on it, probably a book of the man's life. And what's crazy is that I've done a video talking about the Book of Mormon and how Joseph Smith found a book just like this in a mound in New York City. And that's where they got the story of the Book of Mormon that he translated. And when you break that down, the inscriptions on the copper are almost a perfect mirror of Micmac. Micmac is an Indian tribe found from Nova Scotia all the way down into the Virginias. And Micmac, a tribe still alive and well today, have written many books about this, and they show that their language correlates almost perfectly with Egyptian. And when you start to, again, do this kind of pre-babble breakdown of languages, which I've, I've done many episodes on, and I did a whole series with Dr. Longo over Florida, we show the correlation between Phoenician and Hebrew. It's endless, and it's pretty undeniable. There have been plenty of amazingly scholared, well-written books about this. So you're finding this kind of biblical existence of nine-foot-plus-tall giants that they are saying in the 1800s are Israelitish, which in that term, our time frame, meant tall, dark skin, black curly hair, and mummies. There are more mummies found in America in this time frame by a gigantic margin than there are in Europe or Egypt. It's not even comparable. In fact, the Smithsonian was caught stealing mummies from Colorado and shipping them to Europe. Yeah, I heard you mention that, that the governor of Colorado was begging the federal government, hey, can you do something about this? Yeah, and they were like, no, they're paying us. <laughs> yeah, that's so gnarly that there's documentation of that. And you have to imagine that's just one example of probably many that we don't have documented. But that is so interesting to think that Joseph Smith, he just found some Native American history book. And I did a deep dive on him with another guest, and there's good reason to believe he was using psychedelics on his congregations to make them see visions and make them think he was special. So like this guy who's a fraudster just stumbles across one of these things that... He was a John D. He was a John D. reader. He was well aware. In fact, he used the same lens that John D. used to translate Enochian. Did you know that? I knew he had some occult knowledge, but I also was under the impression that he was sort of drugging people to make his rituals seem like more than what they were. Yeah. My wife is Mormon. I'm quite open about this. I love their history. Their history is the closest to what I'm finding, to be honest. They describe many of the biblical stories happening here in America, and that America was densely populated and that there was a cataclysm and God wiped the slate. This is exactly kind of what I've been describing. It's easy to get lost in the details, and I certainly don't play too much with any of that. But you have to understand this time frame. They're just finding all kinds of crazy stuff. And it was probably much more well, I don't want to say documented, but at least by word of mouth, 
spoken of like oh man they're finding not only giants but crazy stuff that no one has an explanation for and it was very well documented that there was a biblical existence among these mound builders quote mound builders and there's many different kinds of mound builders they prove that but yeah just seeing the overlays between that and yeah he used a seeing stone just like john d he was a very well-spoken astrologer. In fact, that's what got him in a lot of trouble, was that he was preaching astrology to his congregation. But yeah, you can find a lot of, when you look through their lineage and the people that moved out west with them and the things they were talking about looking for their Eden, they were looking for Eden in Missouri, in this same area that we've talked about. He was well aware that there was buried history here. Again, going back to what he translated in the books that he eventually started to translate that America was the promised land, so to say. And yeah, you read the caption of my previous video and that just correlates again, coincidentally, that wasn't my goal to talk about that. But yeah, you just see the things they're finding, not only in these tombs, but these mounds and looking at them here in 2023, I think the timing couldn't be better to facilitate people seeing what these people were writing about 150 years ago or more. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I've actually heard the case made that the elite know that we are going to stumble upon the truth and it takes usually X amount of years. And this is when they start looking at, I don't know if they can trigger a reset or if they just happen to coincide, but you know, we have the great reset agenda 2030 and all this information is coming out. Imagine what seven more years is going to look like. You can almost extrapolate out where we'll be with our knowledge in seven more years and where the whole system will be collapsing, unraveling economically, politically, the whole circus is falling apart. People are losing their faith in it. Yeah, just looking at your program leading up to COVID, the writing was on the wall. I mean, we would have never guessed that that's the way it went down, but you've had enough guests and I've read enough material that now that we've made it through that and we're moving towards the next calamity, so to say, that it just seems like it's unstoppable at this point. It's just, what's the damage going to be? What's the fallout, like you said? <laughs> right. And I'm looking at the time. It's hard to know how this show is going to go because we started a little late. We've had some interruptions, but I wanted to slide this into the first hour, which is probably ambitious. It might be in the second, but I wanted to be able to put pyramid bunkers or pyramid vaults in the title because it's so provocative. And you did talk about this a little bit. You gave us the breakdown, but I just want to emphasize like over the years, I've heard so many different theories about the pyramids, ancient alien crafts, free energy factories, Dr. Joseph Farrell with his Giza Death Star weapons hypothesis, and none of it ever really clicked for me. I just don't see them as high technology in those sorts of ways. But you laid out this idea that is now my new favorite theory that the function of the pyramids was arcs or bunkers or vaults. And this is amazing because when you look at the pyramids and you see the x-ray image, they're very solid. There's, yes, a couple of shafts in there, but nothing to indicate like a giant ballroom or something inside. They're very sturdy. And you could almost see a reality where these are made as like seed vaults, culture vaults, and then also capstones to cover up the tunnels down below where they're actually going and they actually live. And I just love this idea because 
people talk about these cycles of resets and even just the idea of cataclysms and what do the elite do? What are they doing right now? They build bunkers underground to try to survive. And this really resonates with me way more than them being machines of some type. And it also explains why we have the global flood myth. We have pyramids all over the world of different design. Covered in earth. Yeah, if they were machines, they probably would be closer in their design, I would think, because there'd be requirements. But if they're just vaults or just, hey, build this structure so that it stands the test of time and can't be destroyed, well, mission accomplished. It explains why you say there's water erosion and high water marks at the top. I was in St. Louis during the flood of 93. Every building a lot of them still have discoloration where this is where the water was in 1993. Salt always leaves that discoloration line. And the closer you are to the Gulf, the worse the line is because the more briny the water is. Makes sense. And this also makes sense of obelisk symbolism. What is an obelisk but a bit of a smaller version? The Washington Monument is the tallest thing in Washington, D.C. It's 555 feet. If there was a huge flood, it's the first structure poking out that anyone would see in the water, letting them know there's something significant there. I could even see the eye in the pyramid symbol and the more esoteric obelisk symbolism that's thrown in our faces as being a flex from the elite. Hey, we made it through using these bunkers and you people don't even fucking get it. I could see that being the message to this stuff. And you say that the Paiute Indians of Utah, Nevada have a story that a kingly priest class, not of their race or people, instructed them to build pyramids for the sake of surviving a deluge. Mississippian cultures describe the same thing. The Hopi also describe the ant people taking them down into tunnels. We know this story broadly, like it's been talked about with guests, but the capstone to the story is that pyramids are the place where these underground networks are established. Maybe you see the cataclysm coming and you look off in the distance and you can see there's the pyramid. There's what we have to get to to survive. Or, you know, when the floodwaters come through, these things are the tallest thing. The peak of it sticks out. Yep. We're below right here. Yeah. And you have to understand, too, is that the story goes that there wasn't just a Noah. There were many people that survived in ships, you know, people that weren't of the priest class or whatever royalty and weren't allowed. Hey, there's only X amount of room, which this is a story that exists today. If you're not on the list, you're not going down below. So these people build boats. That flood myth exists oh, yeah. with varying degrees on all continents. And for me, I think, like you just said, that they are markers. Like this is a city. You're on the ocean. Everything's flooded, but you have a pyramid or a capstone or an obelisk. And you go, okay, this is where we tie off. And below here is your access. The article that you mentioned, there were different shafts at different levels. So depending on the water level, allowed access into these chambers. I've also suggested, and as well as authors had said, that these viewing ports were like calendar keeping. That they knew the flood would recede after X amount of time. And that they would watch the stars from within these chambers and that the pyramids were like their observatory, so to say. And they would come and the priests, the astronomers would look at this and go, we have X amount until we return to the surface. Oh, man. 
And I've also done a video that if you look at old images of Cairo, and I know Graham Hancock's talked about this and several other people have said, well, they must have had some incredibly advanced technology because the plateau that Giza is built on is perfectly flat, mathematically flat. Well, I suggest that they're giant trees. And when you look at old images, old maps of Cairo, all the pyramids are on top of these weird truncated buttes that are perfectly flat. And many of these cultures, I just did a video about forts along the Mississippi, that they all look like tree trunks. They're all perfectly flat. And even the surveyors were like, how could they have excavated all this to make it perfectly flat? And then they built these giant walls and built their city on top of the tree trunk. And then they find that there's tunnels down into the trees and incredible water because trees pull water up. And if you've, again, this is another rabbit hole, but there've been plenty of people that have studied some of these big buttes and they find animal life, unlike anything on the floor, the canopy, so to say, or ground level and animals that don't exist, but other places around the world. And, you know, connecting this again with the vapor canopy and kind of the Enochian story of the fall of the giant trees, the avatar ideas that you built this vault, a doorway, a pyramid's just a door on top of the trees and that they just follow the tree tunnels down into the subterranean. Because you have to imagine if these are giant trees, and this is a big if, but if they are, the veins in which they would pull and move sap and water are huge. And if you look at spelunking enough, which I've looked at thousands of images of spelunking, cave divers, right? They look like the inside of a tree. I mean, many of them like undeniably look like the inside of a tree. In fact, when you look at a spelunking map where they show all the different ways they find and how deep they're able to go, it looks like a tree that's been broken and they're just going down all these different, like if you look at a comparison of a tree next to the comparison of a spelunking map, the veins in the sap arteries are identical. So I've hypothesized that the wood would be very easy to carve and that that was kind of their subterranean city and that the pyramids were there. And then when you look at newer maps of Cairo, they're completely level. So everything flooded and filled in the whole thing. And yeah, that's how the Giza Plateau is perfectly flat. And if you look at old enough maps of Cairo, you'll see all the pyramids are on top of these buttes or these hills. So that's, you know, that's a, <laughs> could be a whole nother episode. But yeah, I've made quite a lot of connections with my opinions about the kind of pre-flood or pre-vapor canopy world being much like an avatar representation. Mm-hmm. And you have shown me some of those images. There's no denying that they look like the inside of hollowed giant trees. I just don't know. That might be the level where I get off. I'm still interested. You know, I just want to get weird while we can, you know. Well, if you got me pulling back, you've done your job, I guess. Good. Yeah. And so, like <laughs> you said, there were several authors because they were talking about the brine line, the salt line on the Pyramid of Giza. And this author and several other researchers said the only way this could have been there is if water, salt water was resting against the pyramid because it was coated and that coating has gone now. They've removed most of it, but it was coated in like half an inch of salt. So they estimated for the salt to have applied itself to the stone in the way it did to the thickness it did that the pyramid of Giza must have been underwater for at least a thousand years or several hundred years. Wow. Wow. It also explains why the secret must be kept. They just allow the mystery to spin off into all this wild stuff 
Oh, yeah. They love the wild shit because it's farther from the truth. Right. And they will not let us know because that's their ultimate secret. If this is a true paradigm of cyclical resets, then the biggest secret is that that is the nature of reality and that it's coming around again. And you peons can't know about it. I love it. And is there something that you've covered in the last six months or so that you think is particularly interesting that we didn't talk about yet? Maybe one particular article or something, because the next time we do this, there's going to be a whole new block of stuff. And we're probably not going to visit things that happened in the last six months from this point. So I know it's almost too open-ended, but if you can think of an article or something to squeeze in before I let you go, let's do it. Man, that's hard. Cause I was either going to say the origins of CERN, because when, you know, I was sending you a list of so many things and I know there's no way you could watch all these videos and especially to research for our discussion. So I was trying to like pick and choose. I think the one we touched on the lightest and that you seem a little bit kind of apprehensive about, which is good, it would be Origins of Coal. You read that article with what we've talked about today, whether or not you listen to the first hour or not, and you broaden your horizons to thinking of things in a much larger scale right? These idea of giant trees, a vapor canopy world, and you watch a movie like Avatar and think this could be quite a lot closer to what this realm looked like, maybe just a thousand or one or two resets or whatever you want to call them ago. And that the coal layer shows you quite convincingly that we were dealing with giants. And I don't mean just people obviously you know we've spoken a lot on every episode we've talked about giants giant humans but giant animals and megafauna and again how that loops into the pyramids as vaults and kind of the buried we stand on the shoulders of giants idea i think that would be my favorite one because that's quite a rabbit hole once you see those images you know and i know you were kind of like oh that's kind of where i have to get off Believe me, that was absolutely the last place I went to. But eventually, just when you start reading articles where this guy's like, the pyramid is a door. It's just a big door. And all the pyramids of the world are just doors. And then that map I mentioned of Cairo always stood out to me. I was like, man, this is so strange. Like, there's all these tree stumps. They look like tree stumps, obviously. And then you look at, you know, some of the material other people have put out there. And I think that would probably be the thing I would go to as a kind of a door into a rabbit hole, so to say, a subterranean rabbit hole into the tree stumps we go. <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. We'll leave people with that and they have the tools they need if they want to follow up. But man, again, your work is some of my favorite stuff on the internet. I'm very fortunate that you don't mind linking up with me and going over what's been new. And I know you started a subscription platform, which I think is exactly the right move. I want this to be your full-time job. You're a family man too. And I want to see this be something that is very prosperous for your family. But tell people about that. What do they get when they sign up? And maybe I think you actually mentioned you're transitioning to a new format for that kind of thing. But tell us what you're thinking. And let us know about anything else you're working on that they could look forward to that would prompt them to support you. Yeah. My subscription at the moment is just, you know, you can be a supporter on YouTube. I don't offer any particular change in my content for that at the moment. Coming in 2024, I have a few things I'm working on. 
certain material or presentations of mine that will be linked in likely with Patreon. I invested quite a lot into Substack and I just didn't really like it too much. But yeah, me and you had thrown around some ideas and all I can really say is just uh, stay tuned. There will be a new layer, so to say, to what the archivist is and whether or not that's a two-part segmented video or breaking up my Anomalous America series. I'm not quite sure yet, but there will be a pretty, I wouldn't say radical, but distinct change towards supporting my viewers that are interested in a subscription and allowing me to take less time at work and invest more time into the channel because that is a very important relationship when you're a parent and a husband is providing. And I want to provide content to those people that wish to support me in that venture. So yeah, stay tuned in 2024 and look forward to making some subscription-based content. Amen, man. I can't imagine having the family and a job and then also wanting to do this on the side, just out of the goodness of your heart. I mean, uh, I would like to see that transition get made. This stuff is incredible. You're very skilled at it. And it's just a really unique place, even in a crowded alternative subculture. So, yeah, and I owe a lot to you, too. So uh, you played a big role. And I don't think I would be doing this if it wasn't for you, to be honest. So no, no, no. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> well, man. You're too kind. And I appreciate just how active you are. I hope to see the channel explode tenfold by the time we talk again. And I just hope you don't forget the little people like me when you're in such high demand. No, stop. <laughs> Until then, take care. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you in six more months. I'm sure I'll have a ton more material to cover. I look forward to it. All right, guys. Analog blowing me away once again. Quickly becoming one of my favorite return guests. You can go back to early THC episodes and hear me talking with people like Xavier Hayes about giants and the usefulness of these old newspaper archives. And Analog has taken that process to its furthest outer edges and created an incredible body of work. And he's just getting started. I know we went a little deep on the story of his motorcycle accident early on, but I wanted to at least get into that with more detail one time because it was said in passing in his first appearance and I just thought there was more to extract from it because I see him coming back quite often. And to me, he does fulfill that archetype of a person who would have no interest in these sorts of things until they go through a life-changing, anomalous experience, an event with a capital E or what Jeff Kripal wrote a whole book about, something like a flip experience. They come in many forms, but a near-death, out-of-body experience is certainly one of them. And now he's sort of a modern mystic, somewhat obsessed with this journey of revealing, and without the accident as a trigger event, I'm not sure we would have analog at all. He'd probably just be another dude named Ben in the world. I also think the pyramids as bunkers is an amazing idea. They get a lot of attention as power plants or weapons, and as much as I want them to be exotic worldwide technology, my understanding has always been that there's not much in the way of mechanical aspects to them inside. 
You could say they were picked over by thieves and scavengers over the years, but all of the worldwide pyramids are different, and they're all largely just made to be solid, strong, robust structures. So this idea makes a lot of sense to me. Maybe that's why the Washington Monument is in D.C. and stands so tall. It's to say, hey, you're going to want to recapture this area when the next cataclysm is over and all the things we built here? Because it's a lot. <laughs> or they might even serve the dual purpose of also marking the ley lines so the next round of elite know how to harness the natural energy grid for their benefit again. The only other theory I like, because they are largely empty and so different in their design, is that they were meant to send people's consciousness blasting through the cosmos. That might explain the archaeoacoustics and the whole thing of just putting a person in this structure that is completely encoded with all the special ratios and then pointed to the stars and you have a blast-off experience. I think it's why Gordon White refers to them as immortality machines. Because when you have these out-of-body experiences, these dream-like journeys, well, time does expand. So you do it enough times, and you're basically living multiple lifetimes within the shell of this lifetime. So I do like saying immortality machines. It's a fun way of conveying that point. I'm still open to all kinds of things. I'll let people make their case, but pyramid bunkers and consciousness projecting immortality machines would be the places I would actually put my money. There is something energetic about the pyramid structure, plenty of research on that. But still, what do humans care most about? Living and not dying. Which would fulfill both of those front-runner ideas and in both cases, I can see why this would be a big historical secret. They don't want us to know what consciousness is capable of, nor do they want us to know that there might be occasional cataclysms. Because not everybody is invited to live through the next cataclysm. Like Madonna said, not everybody's coming to the future. Not everyone who's here is going to last. I could even see things like COVID, the Vax, and World War III as frontrunners to something natural. Thin the herd out so the billionaires don't have to fight that many of us off. Then reemerge and start civilization again. Never allow historical references to the events and go around killing and re-educating any pockets of people who happen to survive in their own way. Maybe aided by ascended masters or their communications with cosmic intelligence or something like that. Maybe there's more than one way to know something bad is coming. Who knows, but the pyramids as vaults or bunkers is great. I'm actually surprised I never heard that before, given the many hours of material I've ingested about the pyramids. But I also love that Analog knows THC and thus is willing to push to the extreme edges with stuff like mines and cavernous cavities being the inside of ancient giant trees. It just seems too far out to me. I guess I would wonder... Well, why aren't there more of them then? Caverns and caves, yeah, they are everywhere. But people talk about the devil's backbone as an ancient giant tree stump, and I can see it, why they would say such a thing, but shouldn't those be everywhere then? Not just one or a couple? I don't know, but that is also the hallmark of a mystic. 
Lots of really unique, important information and a few curveballs thrown in that make you scratch your head. Which is not to say anything about true or untrue, just bizarre and unexpected information included in their repertoire. So I love the guy, I love Mystics, and I hope he continues to grow his brand. Anomalous America is an amazing series. I think he should adopt a THC Plus-like model and do Patreon or something like that because he should be making a living doing this. It's so much work, it's super unique, and I wish him well. But at least do the deep dive into his YouTube channel, show him some appreciation. It does make the world go round. In the Plus Show today, we obviously got deeper into the Pyramid Bunker material. We talked about the royal Egyptologist who did say the Great Pyramids were where people took refuge, the true Noah's Ark. We talked more about the depth of the tunnels beneath. Everyone knows there are tunnels, but why? The Pyramid Bunker theory answers that question. We also added way more about radium and this third balanced state of electricity, some of my favorite analog stuff, several layers added to that stack. We talked about the John Jacob Astor connection and how this radium thing might have had more to do with the sinking of the Titanic with him on it than even the Federal Reserve situation. I'll have to redesign that t-shirt in the THC store now, or at least make it glow green in the dark like a Shane Gillis skull shirt. But we also got into Astor's idea that we are inside the Earth and the sun and the moon are reflections on the dome. Mysteries from expeditions to the poles, warm lands with dark-skinned people beyond the poles. Just good, classic THC, wild, speculative stuff based on old writings. I mean, these were real expeditions, and John Jacob Astor was a true billionaire oligarch with some wild ideas. So it adds a little credence to some of these things. So now that we're putting it out there, I'm very happy with it, especially once we truly got cooking in the second hour, but you be the judge. As for the last episode with Seamus Bruner, the plus people have spoken 4.9, definitely the highest rating I can remember, and I'm pretty surprised actually. I liked Seamus, but I was worried that for this audience, it would be too much review or too much of a broad overview of their ideas. We know about the control oligarch's plans. I don't deny it's very important and very relevant, but I just thought people would not find much new in it. And clearly I was wrong, so that's great to know. When I look at what I have scheduled, we don't have a show like that for a while. Maybe one, actually. But it's a lot of unexpected stuff and some explorations of other people that I think are a lot like the archetype of a mystic in the sense that they had a strange breakthrough experience and now have some sort of tether to cosmic knowledge. So I hope you guys like that sort of thing because we have at least three more coming that are in that vein. But now with the Seamus Bruner rating, I have new information and I'll try to pepper in some more nose to the grindstone, practical current events and conspiracy. This is how the dance is done. And I'm usually a few steps ahead, so it takes a while before you see any sort of course adjustment. But just know I've taken notice of that 4.9. Thanks to all the plus members who keep me in the game. My family has a better life because of you. My kids probably wouldn't even exist without you, so they owe ya. 
and you get twice as much show. And apparently you think I'm good at this, so it's a win-win-win-win, right? It's like magic or something. But before we go, let's also see where THC fans are congregating to drink a little drink, smoke a little smoke, and make some new local friends that won't freak out when Virus X comes around or whatever the hell is next. On deck, we got February 3rd, the Carbondale Buckwater Brew Works and Whiskey House, Buckwater Brew Works in Carbondale, Illinois. February 8th, Flame International Restaurant in LA once again. February 10th, Saco, Maine at the Golden Rooster. February 13th, right in the belly of the beast, Balgard in Washington, D.C. And this person said nobody came last month. However, they had a wonderful time getting out of their apartment. And the second Tuesday of a month is a good rhythm for a hermit. So lean into that. I know we have THC listeners in Washington, D.C. Help a guy out. Also, February 17th, we have one in London at the Monkey Puzzle. And February 20th, two-for-one brews in Nashville, Tennessee at Monday Night Brewing. So there it is, the month of February, pretty packed. I like to see that and use the calendar while you can. It's a super easy way to meet new people because THC is such a wide umbrella that it's easy to find common interests and all that. Please go to Hireside Meetups and RSVP if you plan on attending these. It's just good manners. Let the host know they won't be alone. And thanks again to Ben, a.k.a. Analog. I hope you give him some good feedback. He's active on Twitter and shares a lot of great articles there. He's already released enough new content to fill a whole nother interview on his YouTube channel since we recorded this. So go enjoy that, and I'll see you next time. Your move, history hiders, timeline tinkerers, and pyramid bunker builders. Your fucking move. I won't take it. Built according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. 
The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do? Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, 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 take it under.